Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 28. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-coloured ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered them regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the that the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Well, good morning, everyone. What a joy and privilege it is to uh, serve you this morning. Firstly, thank you to Stephen Ruth for doing the Bible reading uh, this morning. My name is Shabu. I'm one of the pastors here at Canterbury. I've got to be honest, it is both a challenge and also a joy uh, to serve you this morning. The challenge is I'm in this very empty, very cold uh, building uh, as I record for our service this morning. I deeply miss the gathering of his church in this building. It is also a joy because I've got to be honest with you, this passage has overwhelmed my heart this week as I've been meditating on it and considering it. And I pray as we pause for a moment in this season that our hearts will be recaptured with the wonder and greatness of who God is and what he has done through his son and particularly as we consider what's in front of us. Uh, as we continue our time through the book of Hebrews, last week Paul did an amazing job to get our hearts to consider the better covenant that Jesus offers and brings. And because of what Christ has done, this covenant is not just for a particular people group, but it has been God has revealed himself through his Son, as we heard last week, from the least to the greatest, he has been merciful towards us. And he will remember our sins no more because of the greater and better covenant in Christ, what Jesus has done. Now, this morning is really kind of answering the question, well, how is that possible? How has this been achieved? And that's what the Hebrew writer now wants to focus on in Hebrews chapter 9. This morning, my prayer has been this, that what we would consider with the chapter in front of us is this, the greater blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, would you join with me in prayer? Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord Jesus, our great King. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that wherever we are, in whatever season that we're in, whether we're listening or watching, would you overwhelm our hearts with the beauty and wonder of what Christ has done through his precious blood. And Lord Jesus, I pray this, not for my sake, but for your glory, Lord, for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. 
As I was sharing before, as I stand in this very empty hall, uh, very cold hall, by the way, uh, there's a sense it doesn't feel very awe-inspiring, particularly right now. You know, maybe when you have grown up in certain church circles, perhaps you've grown up in the tradition when we think about church buildings, there is a sense of awe. There is a sense that it's as though God's presence is there. We might hold it with high regard. There are those of us also who've grown up in traditions where church building is just a building. It's not something that we make a huge um, fuss about. Perhaps we have a low view of it. See, maybe even when we come to a church service, as we gather as a church and we pray for that soon, Lord willing, we come maybe in a sense to perhaps see one another and and, and encourage each other and and fellowship with each other. But do we come with a, a sense of that we are actually entering the very presence of God? We may just come along, you know, just to hang out. But there are those of us, I know, who have grown up in certain traditions. When we come to a place of worship, we come with a sense of, well, you know, you come with your Sunday best, whatever that might look like for you. As you can tell, I'm not sure if this is my Sunday best. Uh, Whoever you are, we need to consider this, right? When we gather in this building... It's not though as though there are certain sections that are only available for certain people. It's not as though you're not allowed to come onto this platform here or you're not allowed to go to certain parts or certain parts of the hall. They're not closed off from you. But here, this is what's going on in the passage in front of us. So for the Jewish people and for those who are the original hearers of this letter, when they consider the, the, the tabernacle, when they consider uh, what was in the past, through particularly uh, in the book of Exodus, they know that there were certain areas and sections, in a sense, that was not open to the public. The Hebrew writer here, and the Hebrew writer has been already doing this, I hope you've been picking up in the book of Hebrews, is constantly pointing back pointing back particularly for the Jewish audience then, to know to, to, to what they already know and say, hey, look, what Jesus offers is much better, so please don't go back to what you thought was better, and particularly the things of the past. And this time in verses 1 to 10 in chapter 9, the writer takes them back to a place for them in history would have been a place of awe and wonder and worship, but also even fear. One that to they know was closed off to many. The writer's taking them back to, as we've already studied in the book of Exodus, you know, it's up here on the screen from this passage in Exodus 25. This is God speaking to Moses and says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. And so Moses did that. And do you remember that? Everyone, uh, in a sense, chipped in to build a house for God, for his presence to dwell. 
Now, I don't know if you remember what it looked like. There's a picture up here on the screen for you. The first one that shows you both uh, the, the area around it and um, the sort of the area that's outside the tabernacle, all those areas. Now, we won't go into detail here, but the passage in front of us goes into detail, particularly about a particular section. That is the second uh, section. It's shown here in the second picture for you. The first section, what was it called? It's called the holy place. This is where the lampstand is. This is where the table of bread is. And then you've got the second section, what was also known as the most holy place or the holy of holy, holy of holies. This is where God's presence dwelt. You have the altar, you have the Ark of the Covenant, you have it was made by gold, it was meant to sort of really give you this awe-inspiring picture. You've got uh, the urn with the manna in it, where a reminder of God's provision. You've got Aaron's staff, you've got tablets where this is the commandments, the covenants that are there. And you've got the very description of angelic beings, a replica of what they were looking like. This is over the mercy seat. See, what's given to Moses and the people was to build something that was a shadow or a small glimpse into the very presence of God and his throne room. But starting from the outer gate to the Holy of Holies, I don't know if you noticed how many gates are there, how many things are blocking people from entering the very dwelling place of God because it is known as the Holy of Holies because God's presence is there. Yes, God came to dwell with his people, but it was blocked off from approaching him. And not only that, not just approaching him, but seeing him. It's another way of saying that people couldn't just rock up to God's house as they please. They had to even enter the various sections, the very dwelling place of God. The only way you could actually be allowed, actually... It was only if you had particular permission, and it had to come from God himself. And that's why all these certain people were allowed. The priests were the only ones. And they were also then only allowed in certain parts. And the holy of, holy of holies was only where the high priest could enter. That was only allowed once a year. In verse 7, you see that. See, for the people then... God's throne room was blocked off. And this was to stir this sort of sense that God's presence and his place is holy and sinful people cannot approach him. I know there's this wonderful account of God's throne room, a vision that the prophet Isaiah had. I don't know if you remember it. It's up here on the screen, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And see what Isaiah's response is when he, he's facing God, who is holy, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. 
I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Isaiah knew, seeing God, a holy God, would mean death for him because of his own sinfulness and also because he lived amongst sinful people. It meant death. If you want to see that again, you can see it in places like in Ezekiel 10 or in later on in the New Testament in Revelation 4. So the very dwelling place of God, the earthly dwelling place in the tabernacle was a, a mirror or an aspect of heaven. This was a place that only God was allowed to be in. And only certain people would come into his presence. Which meant the rest of the people could not come into his presence. Not only that, they could not actually see God. Because he is holy. And to enter his presence, blood must be spilt. Blood is required. Friends, when we read these kind of passages, uh, there may be a few of us, how we come into it. Some of us get really caught up in the details, and that's great and wonderful. Some of us go, oh, we kind of glaze over the facts. But I think in the midst of this, what happens is often we forget and water down the holiness of God. And we water it down. See, for the people then and all the various things and all the rituals that were set in place by God through Moses and the priests and the high priests to govern, was there to govern what worship of God will look like. Not only that, what it means to approach a holy God, that blood is required to enter God's house. You know, um, God is still holy today. Perhaps you and I, when we consider the thought of worshipping God, maybe we need to consider for a moment of how holy he is. Maybe you and I need to make worship of God. And when I mean worship, I'm not just talking about singing songs. I'm talking about all of our lives, our very being, worshipping God. We must do so with an awe and reverence of who he is. Perhaps you and I have forgotten how holy he is still. Perhaps we have forgotten. Maybe our response often needs to be like Isaiah. I am undone when we are confronted by the holiness of God. That we need to remember we are like the people of Israel. That actually, in our own merits... In our own efforts, we cannot enter the holy presence of God. We can't. This is why blood is needed. This is why atonement is needed. The only blood is the blood of Jesus. This is the far better blood, the greater blood, because it is the perfect blood. 
And we have this in verse 7 in Hebrews 9, 7 to 10. Have a look with me again. But into the second Oli, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. And also you see that in verse 9, it says, for which is symbolic for the present age. That's a little footnote there for the audience then and for us too. Uh, when we talk about the language of blood, I don't know what stirs up in your heart and mind. When we consider blood, uh, for some of us, we might get woozy at the very thought of it, the sight of it. Um, when you consider in that day and time, in the Old Testament in particular, and actually even at the time of the Hebrew writer, the temple most likely was there, and so people would have seen and heard the various sacrifices continuing. But to know that to come and worship God at his earthly dwelling place, you couldn't just enter. The whole area would have been soaked in bloodshed. I mean, from the very entry to the very holy of holies, throughout scripture, you have this constant reminder of blood being spilled and blood being sprinkled on people. Have a think about that when you come to Canterbury Gardens on a church service. Imagine John and I and the other pastors standing there splashing you with blood. But this is the seriousness of sin. Death is required. And actually, even in the New Testament, when Jesus' time, you know, you know, historians say the amount of animals that would have been massacred and killed, and even on the Day of Atonement, the amount of lambs that would have been killed, there was blood all over the place. Now, I'm kind of probably talking about this uh, a bit too much for some of us, but please come along with me. See, this is a reminder for us that to enter the very holy of holies, you can't just enter. Blood has to be shed. And even in that time, for both the high priest and for the people. And that's only done once a year. But it was done continuously, every year. Yet all this bloodshed couldn't do something. That you could not be made truly holy before a holy God. And you see that in verse 9, right? It cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. The system then dealt with the external things, uncleanliness, but it did not deal with the internal uncleanliness, the very heart and conscience. So the author is saying blood is needed. Yet all that blood is not enough to deal with the conscience of a person before a holy God. And so it wasn't enough. And so for the people then, they're tempted to go back. And the author is saying, don't go back. That would not actually sort things out for you. Actually, if you go back, it's also like it's almost you're like trying to be blocked again from the holy presence of God to truly come and worship him. There's only one who can actually achieve this. Only one whose blood can achieve this. The one that they've already been talking about earlier in Hebrews, this great high priest, a far more precious blood, that is Jesus Christ and his blood. 
A few years ago, when I was involved in campus ministry, we used to have student conferences. And sometimes in these conferences, we would invite um, students who did not know Jesus yet. So they'd come and, you know, they would not have any church background. I remember talking to this one particular girl and asking her afterwards, I said, hey, what do you think about this experience? You know, what, what are you thinking? And she said, yeah, you know, it's absolutely amazing. You know, this room, and you're all singing and it's really beautiful. I've been quite overwhelmed by it, Shabu. And she sort of looked and paused for a moment and said, can I be honest with you about something though? I said, yeah, sure. She said, that song that you sang, it's something, Blood of Jesus or something? I said, yeah, yeah, like, you know, it's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? And she goes, well, actually, to be honest, it's kind of gross. I feel quite sick listening to you guys sing over and over again. And maybe in recent times, you would have already seen this. And I'm not trying to cause controversy, but people holding signs up saying, you know, blood of Jesus is my vaccine. Or you've seen videos of pastors, both locally and overseas, saying the blood of Jesus, like a magic potion and a word thrown around. I mean, I actually had a friend of mine who does not know Jesus yet message me with pictures of these things and saying, do you know these people? Because apparently, because I'm the Christian, so I know all Christians, right? But they said, Shabu, this is really weird about this blood stuff. You guys are strange. Now, friends, I'm not here to comment on those particular things, but what I'm trying to explain, maybe in a really bad way with my illustration, is this. But to those who do not know Jesus, the blood of Jesus does not make sense. The need for his blood to be spilled does not make sense. It will not make sense till they're confronted by the holiness of who God is and their sin. And this is why the Holy Spirit needs to convict them of this. So when they realize this, then can they only truly see the beauty and depth and wonder of what Jesus' blood has done. That his blood brings redemption and rescue from God's wrath. The author of Hebrew wants to point this out in verses 11 to 28. What's given is this beautiful account how Jesus' blood is enough to enter the very presence of God to worship him. Have a look with me in verse 11. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but the means of his own blood, as securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Jesus, as we've been hearing over and over again, is the greater high priest. As the greater, more perfect tent, not made by the hands of men, but he is God himself, comes into this world, sheds his blood. See, what the author is doing and has been doing all throughout Hebrews is connecting the dot where we know those, those, initiation, those covenant initiating ceremonies of the past are now being recalled 
This is talking about the Mosaic Covenant initiation ceremony. The author shows now what has happened is Christ himself initiates. Christ himself mediates. Christ himself, as we heard last week, brings a better and new covenant for his people by offering himself as a sacrifice for their sin. I mean, if you have a moment, I'd encourage you to grab a pen or a pencil and write or circle how many times the word blood is mentioned. It gives us a sense that much blood is spilled and needed to come, is is spilled and, and is needed for us to come and worship a holy God. But there's only one blood, only one person's blood will satisfy the Father, his son's sacrifice. This is why we need God himself in Christ to come as the great high priest, as the unblemished one, the one who brings in this new covenant, not based on the blood of animals, but his own precious blood, the only blood that can bring true redemption of the conscience of the worshipper of God from sin. See, Jesus could only do this. Only God himself can provide this. It says that God himself comes from the very presence, from heaven itself to earth in Christ. And this is what the Hebrew writer really wants to repeat this over and over again. And in this section, Hebrews 9, 24 to 26, you have this. The Christ had entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, the writer of Hebrews wants to hear us then and today to be captured by what Jesus' shed blood means. As the one who is the greater and perfect tent, in whom the Father is well pleased in. As the one who is the true lampstand, as the light of the world. As the one whose sacrifice was sufficient once for all. As the one who is the bread of life. As the one who has fulfilled the demands of the law perfectly. As the one who comes as the unblemished lamb. Who shed his blood for the sins of many. As the one on that cross who cried, it is finished. Tore open that curtain to the entrance of the Holy of Holies by his precious blood. As the one who now appears in the very presence of God on behalf of those who are his. Christ's blood declares out loud to approach, to worship the God of the universe. It is only through him. It is through his precious blood. And for you and I to realize that, you and I need to die. Die to us and commit our lives to him. Sin means death. Sin leads to death. 
And this is why we needed Jesus Christ and his precious blood. He was willing to come and die for your rebellion, my rebellion, our rejection of a holy God. So God makes a way. The shadow is what throughout Hebrews you'll hear. This is why we needed something much better, much greater. And the, the, the things of the past were a shadow to point. A better way to worship God himself is through Jesus Christ, his son. And yet even to this day, we desire to worship a holy God on our terms, by our means, in whatever form that might look like, whether if it's being really good or whether if it's going to church services or church attendance, whatever it might be, or there are those of us who might forget how holy God is. We might say, yes, I'm forgiven, I'm under grace, but yet Monday to Saturday we live as we please. We lose the wonder and weight and beauty in the blood of Jesus Christ. So what happens is we use our own means. We use our freedoms for our own selfish purposes. And we throw around the blood of Jesus like some people have as a lucky charm, even today. Or perhaps you're someone who does not know Jesus. And all this blood talk sounds really intense and strange. Dear friend, it is meant to make you realize there is a holy God who cannot stand sin and a sinful people. The end of Hebrews 9 says, we all will die once. And after that comes judgment. See, and when you and I face our holy God, all our good works, all of us trying to be a good person, will not stand before a holy God. The only way will be if someone stands up for you, someone who stands before you on behalf of you for you and says, I shed my blood for them. Jesus has done this. And if you do not know Jesus, we plead with you. We cry out to you today. Turn from your sin. Give your life and faith to Christ. If you want to know more about what that means, we would invite you to please email office at cgcc.org.au and one of the pastors would love to talk to you or talk to your friend who knows Jesus and what that means. Christian friends, next time when you and I open God's word, don't just turn it into an intellectual exercise or something of duty to tick off. Or maybe when you and I sing a song in the car with the kids or sing any kind of song to God. Or maybe when we pray with someone and for someone. I want you and I to consider this. Pause for a moment. The only, reason, the only reason you and I can stand before a holy God and worship is because of Jesus' precious blood. The blood that has bought redemption. So our hope and assurance is this. Jesus' work is sufficient. Jesus' work is sufficient, amen? So we need to cry out to God. We need to pray, Holy Spirit, 
the one who is our seal, to help us rest in this, to look up to this truth, that there is a day coming that Jesus will appear again, not to deal with sin. Let me say it again, not to deal with sin, as the passage says there. Why? Because his blood has cleansed you and I. So as we wait, we must wait in eagerness for his return. Until then, though, there is work to do. We are still called to worship. We are called to worship God wherever we are in all that we do. Romans speaks of whether we eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. We worship him through our Jesus, our Redeemer, with thankfulness for the blood that he shed on our behalf. As you and I, in this season, as we encourage each other through prayer and SMSs and various things, as we learn to love and serve one another, who are struggling, particularly with those of us who are struggling in our walk with Jesus, maybe what we need to be reminded of is what Christ has done and rest in that and rejoice in that and give thanks for that. There are those of you I know who are struggling in your faith in this season. Perhaps you've been caught up in some sort of sin pattern in your life right now. Friend, I want you to know you are under grace if you belong to Christ. Yes, but God is still holy. He hates sin. Turn to him. Confess your sin to Christ. Confess your sin to a trusted brother or sister in Christ to pray with you, to encourage you. He is faithful and just to forgive your sin. This is what it means, Christ's blood has done, that you are able to do this. Our great high priest intercedes on your behalf and mine, and yet you and I still need grace today. Jesus Christ is our greater, better ten. He shed his blood. He has opened the way for you and I, not only to know God, but to see him, and we see him in Christ. For we are his... The Bible describes us as a royal priesthood called to live lives devoted in worship to him in all areas of lives, not just on Sundays. Serving our risen high priest who right now is in the very presence of God, interceding on our behalf. In Revelation 5 verses 1 to 14, we have these words. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a skull written Within and on the black, on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down from before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, might and honour, glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might and forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Dear friends, this is who Jesus is. This is what Christ has done. This is our precious Saviour. This precious blood shed. And now he's seated, reigning and ruling. And the day is coming when he will return. There's a Scottish reformer by the name of Horatius Bonner. He wrote a hymn. I'm just going to read the words for us. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful Lord. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine. No other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. We can come to a holy God to worship only because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, oh Lord, I pray in this season, may we grow even more in awe of who you are and what you have done. Lord Jesus, even now this morning, overwhelm us with this truth. Thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sins and shedding your blood. Thank you for the promise and truth that if we are in you, we are secure in you. We yearn for your day of return. Until then, empower us, Holy Spirit, to live for Christ, to give all areas of our lives as worship to you. In your mighty name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.